Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Matt Salem, and you have tuned in to another episode of Our Best Behavior, a podcast brought to you by Behaviorally. Behaviorally, formerly PRS, helps brands improve shopper and consumer experiences by defining and diagnosing the behaviors that drive shopper growth. Each month, we produce a podcast to share industry insights on trending topics designed to help you make better shopper marketing decisions. Today, we are joined by Ian Elmer, U.S. Managing Director at Behaviorally. Ian, great to have you on with us. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So, Ian, this is uh, not your first rodeo, as I recall. <laughs> you've uh, you've actually had an interesting past when it comes to not necessarily podcasts, but broadcasting. I'd, I'd love to just hear a bit about that for a moment. That, that's correct. Many, many, many years ago, before I found my way into the wonderful world of market research, I actually did a bit of broadcasting back in the UK. I used to work for a commercial radio station, reading the news and doing my favourite thing, which was going to soccer games and doing uh, like half-time and full-time reports from soccer games. It was it was a lot of fun. Well, you could tell that you've been in the US for a while now because you're actually referring to it as soccer. So I, mean, I still have to force myself to do that. You know, <laughs> It will always be football to me. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us again, and I'm really excited to have you today to talk about the newest launch from Behaviorally. Not a product, not a service, but an ebook, which is called The Power of Packaging to Drive Shopper Growth. And I was hoping you could start by just telling us a bit about how that came to fruition and how the book was developed. Yeah, so it's it's a it's an exciting piece of work, and it's really part of a celebration. I would say, a celebration of us reaching our first anniversary as behaviorally, uh, but primarily for the purposes of this book, a celebration of 50 years of understanding consumer behavior and understanding what makes great pack design. And to celebrate those milestones, we thought what better way to mark the occasion than put a lot of the things that we've learned over that time into one resource for our clients to use that will really answer a lot of common questions that we get day in, day out. And you all have had these many times, Matt, yourself, as to some of the some of the tips and tricks of what makes packaging design effective. Sounds great to have that all in one place. I can only imagine the effort that went into developing something that is as succinct as an ebook yet covers 50 years worth of learning. Can you tell me a bit about what sparked the idea originally and then the process to get there? Yeah, so the the original spark really was kind of like an acknowledgement that we get asked the same questions quite a lot of times by different clients and we have a lot of knowledge from our database we've got a huge database of pack designs from which we've been able to really learn a lot over 50 years in terms of what works and and what doesn't work and we spend a lot of time working with our clients and consulting with our clients and sharing this insight with them but we've never really put it all in one place never really consolidated it all into one compendium that people can use as a reference guide to answer those those common questions that always come up so that was the that was the spark really was kind of like this we've got this celebration coming up let's mark it by putting all that information putting all that insight in one place and and sharing it with everybody so that they can use it as a reference guide and the process was 
fascinating one to to go through as you can imagine it's kind of a a lot of information a lot of data and a lot of insight that we're working with a lot of the heavy lifting had been done over the years by people mining the database to find answers to some of these common questions so i think what i found kind of like the most challenging piece of it was finding a way to synthesize that all into into one book deciding what should go in and what stays out was a process in and of itself as well and then over the course of time things change and what we wanted to do was make sure that for every chapter and every theme we had current examples and reference points and case studies for people to look at because those things really help bring it to life when you can actually see a visualization of the point that we're talking about it it just it just makes it resonate so much more so we spent a lot of time thinking about okay we've known this insight for a while we're referencing some cases that are maybe 5 10 even 15 years old in some cases we need to refresh that we need to bring that up to date we need to find the current examples that bring these these truths to life because what what's really interesting is that over the 50 years a lot of the common principles and truths are still the same they haven't really changed that much what has changed is kind of like the way they manifest themselves and visualize themselves in the in the world today yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think in, in being here for quite a bit of time myself, I've seen that over time, that the truths are there, the truths remain. There's just a need to think about the way that we're communicating them in today's day and age to our clients. Now, those truths ended up becoming 10 chapters in this book, a variety of topics that are covered. Some of them that I particularly enjoyed when I was reading through the book was one about four S's, which is really the four key principles that become an underlying theme and an underlying premise throughout the book, which is to be seen, shoppable, seductive, and selected. And hopefully those that are listening right now will go to the ebook after listening to this podcast and read a bit more there. But essentially, four core areas that are going to be important for any packaging when it's introduced or when it's restaged within the marketplace. And then another chapter that I particularly enjoyed, given all the work that we've done as behaviorally, is one tied to sustainability and what makes good sustainability-related packaging. So if you want to communicate that, what are the table stakes? What are the costs of entry? What do you need to keep in mind? What are some of the trade-offs? And what can you expect in being a sustainable offering within any given category. Ian, wanted to hear from you. Maybe those are your favorites. Maybe there are some others, but are there any particular chapters or topics that you enjoyed when you were working on the book, creating it, reading through it after it was completed? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, first of all, I would say I agree with you. That kind of first chapter about the four S's is a really important one because that's the thing that really grounds everything that follows that because what that is all about is about kind of the behavior that you're looking for from 
shoppers when they're in the physical or digital shopping environment. So if you if you succeed on those things, you've got a winner. If you fail on those things, you've got a loser. It, it really does boil down to that at the end of the day. But I think for me, my personal interest with some of the chapters is probably tied a little bit to to my background in the industry, which was a lot in brand and communications research. And one of them is the chapter that's on colour and the whole concept of colour being a really distinctive asset for your product on the shelf and something that people are instantly attracted to and is a real heuristic, a real mental shortcut for the shopper in making their purchase decision. So I, I love that chapter because it goes into depth about how when you change colours, the risk involved in that is that you disrupt those distinctive brand assets so that you're mm. you're taking away some of those mental shortcuts. Um, so that, that for me was a really interesting one to, to get into. And the other one that fascinated me as well is... Um, the chapter that's really focused on kind of what we call evolution versus revolution, which is kind of like how far do you take a pack design if it's a restage of a of an existing product, an existing design, how far can you really push the envelope? And if you're a new entrant into the market, what can you do that's pretty radical to disrupt the category and really give yourself visibility on shelf and, and create a name for yourself. And again, a lot of that is tied down to the extent to which you're brave enough to change what you've relied on for so long in the past and, and really break with convention and, and push the envelope. And there's a really high risk, high reward mechanism at play there. Yeah, I, I like those chapters as well. And the thing that struck me again here and struck me as I was reading through the book myself is that a number of these topics overlap and intertwine. So when you think about evolution versus revolution and you think about the impact that color can have on a shopper's experience and behavior, really brands, when they're looking to make revolutionary changes, oftentimes think about the color that they're using on pack. And even if there is some latent visual equity within the color that they're using, they may choose to emphasize that further or de-emphasize it in an effort to extend the brand into new variants, in an effort to think about competitive environment and how they need to change to adapt. So it really is a book that you can read through multiple times because I think some of these connections start to interweave and come through as you read it the second time around, the third time around. Color interplays with evolution and revolution. Both are tied into being seen, shoppable, seductive, and selected. So it's, it's worth flipping through as a reference, but it's also worth reading cover to cover and rethinking through the various chapters and how they interrelate to one another. That's right. They, they really do. And that was quite actually quite a challenge as we were putting it together was to kind of like segregate these things in a way that sometimes they don't naturally kind of like lend themselves to that sort of segregation because it all is intertwined and there is an interplay between structure and colour and text and, and pictures and it 
it, it's it's not always easy to break down into to bite-sized chunks. And again, this is where the benefit of our database was really helpful because because we've taken the time over the years to really code on things that we've tested, what has changed. We can look at kind of different elements individually, but also can combine those things as well. So, okay, so what happens when you change structure and colour? Does, does that usually work or does it not usually work? So there's a lot of mileage we can get from from that database that really informed this book and i think you're right in terms of the way you read it it's i think it's done in a way that you can dip in to an individual chapter to to get some great insight on a very specific topic but as you go through it particularly with the 4s framework in mind that's the common thread along with our kind of behavioral framework of benefits and barriers that really helps link it all together and you you can see from one chapter to the next where things kind of interplay with each other. Absolutely. In mentioning the database, 30,000 designs in the database, 15 million shoppers in the database, who had the luxury of going through all of this data? And I wonder, was there any help from AI? Well, that's a great, great question, Matt. I mean, it's um, uh, it's a mix of all of the above, really. We do have some great AI tools that allow us to kind of really mine the database and, and now at a visual level as well as kind of like a data or a, a numbers level as well. A lot of where we started with this was actually kind of a little bit more basic than that and, and specking out kind of what questions we really wanted to find answers to. And then we can use the database and we can run the analysis on the database to find those answers. So it was a combination, I'd say, of using what we can automate and use artificial intelligence for to kind of like just find great examples and then kind of like a more manual process of thinking, okay, what question do we want to do we want to answer? And then what do we want to mine in the database to find the answer to that question? Would you say, Ian, that there was anything surprising that came about during the development of the book, whether it's the data itself, whether it's an interpretation of a data point, or maybe even a challenge that arose when you were culminating all of the topics and putting them together? Maybe not a surprise, because I think we already... in intrinsically knew this to a large degree but it it really does just emphasize what a very difficult job it is to move the needle on a pack design if you want to take it to the next level in terms of being selected or being seen or or being shoppable it is not easy it really is not easy which is why you should always test and learn right because there is a lot at risk if you if you don't but i think it also highlighted that kind of anything is possible you get the combination right and you pull the right levers you can be completely revolutionary and be successful you can also be completely revolutionary and be a disaster (laughs) Um, but but all outcomes are possible and the database confirms that right that you can you with the right thought and the right learning and the right insight from directly from the shopper, 
you you can achieve anything that you want to achieve. You just have to do it diligently and thoroughly and be cognizant of the levers to pull that are going to work in your favour and the levers to kind of leave alone, if you like, because if you if you change them, they're going to be too disruptive and, and cause you problems. Yeah, well said. And I, I, I've long had conversations with our clients around the potential for packaging to have such a significantly positive impact. Yet, on the flip side, you have to be very careful because small changes even can make big differences. And we want to make sure that we're protecting our brands, that we're protecting our visual assets when we're changing them in evolutionary or revolutionary fashion. And it's very hard to drive behavioral change when we're looking at packaging and isolation as the sole variable of change within our research. There's no other support in terms of marketing, advertising. At that point, we're really trying to isolate the impact of packaging. So it can be difficult for brands, but it can be achieved at the same time. It, it can. And, and the last chapter is, is an interesting one because that's about avoiding the pitfalls of, of packaging design and one of the one of the kind of the things that always makes me smile is that it is that we we don't always ask the question at the start why are we doing this like what is what is the purpose of this because if you don't ask that question right at the start the likelihood is the outcome you get won't be the one you want and it's a it's a really good grounding and it comes right at the end of the book it's kind of like we go through all these all these great insights about the things that make packaging successful and make packaging design work and then we kind of really bring you back down to earth with a bump and say you need to even think about whether you should be doing it in the first place is the first question you should ask and if you if you are going to do it why are you doing it because if you don't ask yourself that fundamental question you're going to have a hard time achieving what you want to achieve sure well as i try to visualize our audience's reactions listening to the podcast right now i see a lot of pent-up demands for the book where can they get the book how do they get the ebook well, they can go to our website, behaviorally.com, and they can access it there. They can always contact us as well. One thing that we are very keen and looking forward to doing is really getting out and sharing this with our clients and using it um, as, a, as a mechanism to, to have conversations with clients about their, their challenges, what they struggle with, what they need more information on. And, and I really see this as kind of like just the start, really. It's, uh, like I said earlier, it was, it was a process to determine what should go in and what should stay out. So there's, there's, there's a lot more depth we can go into on each of the subjects featured in the, in the book. And who knows? Maybe, maybe there's a volume two. Maybe that, maybe that when we get to 100 years, Matt, when, <laughs> when you're, still, <laughs> you're still doing the podcast in, in 50 years' time. God willing. God willing, I will be. <laughs> well, I always like to end and close with some random sort of question. And I guess for you, I'll harken back to the very beginning of today's conversation and ask... What was your favorite broadcasting experience, aside from what is now your favorite broadcasting experience, which is appearing on the Our Best Behavior podcast? This is certainly the, the pinnacle of my broadcasting career. That is, that is absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, before that, I would say 
I was, I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things. There are okay. two things. The first, which was a real kind of milestone for me, was my first ever news bulletin that I read on a commercial radio station in the UK because that was that was a scary moment. Let me let me tell you, that was a very, very <laughs> scary moment. You might be sitting in a room on your own and just talking into a microphone, but I was very scared. <laughs> was that but on the I BBC did, or where was that? No, sadly, sadly not. No, it was commercial radio, a local radio station in the UK near my hometown. So uh, I never reached the heady heights of the BBC, sadly. <laughs> Um, so that was the first one. And the second one was uh, something that really plays into my passion for football as, or soccer, as we were talking about it earlier. And I had the I had the opportunity to do match reports for the team that I support, a team called Coventry City. And by doing that, I got to interview some of the players and interview the manager and I was like a kid in a candy shop. That was just the 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 most amazing experience for me. It was something that had never been beaten until today and and this podcast. You are too kind. Thank you, Ian. And Coventry City sounds a lot better than being a Mets and a Jets fan, but I'll stop there. <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Our Best Behavior and tuning in today. I'd like to thank our guest, Ian. Ian, thanks a lot for coming on and talking with us about the book. And to our audience, we'll catch you next time.